I'm Linda Holmes. I'm here in the studio with Stephen Thompson and Glenn Weldon. Hi, guys. Hey. Hello. And we are here to have a conversation about which of us has the best local NPR member station. Now, Glenn and I grew up near each other, so we would argue that it might be your WHYY yeah. in Philadelphia where they make fresh air. Right. And you went back and forth between that and WXPN all a- the time. Absolutely. Stephen, do you have a case to make? I have a case to make for Wisconsin Public Radio, uh, a marvelous network of stations in my home state of Wisconsin that produces, among other things, the Peabody Award-winning show to the best of our knowledge on which I've gotten to appear a couple times. It is a fantastic, fantastic show. And I have to say, I could also put in a word for Minnesota Public Radio, where I spent a lot of time in Minnesota. I could put in a word for Oregon Public Broadcasting. I spent time in Portland, Oregon when I was in law school. I don't know if we've reached a final conclusion about who has the best NPR member station. I think that what we want to do is remind people that whatever your local NPR member station is, they want your support in the form of you coming and arguing with us about why they are the best station, but also... They want your support by you donating at donate.npr.org slash happy. That will inure to the benefit of your station and also to the benefit of us, because <laughs> that'll make it clear that uh, you're donating here at Pop Culture Happy Hour. Wreck-It Ralph was a hit when it first came out in 2012. The film followed a video game villain as he hopped from game franchise to game franchise in search of a new and heroic identity. Ralph Breaks the Internet picks up where that film left off and is even more ambitious than its predecessor. This time, Ralph travels to the Internet, which gives the movie a lot of material to work with. I'm Glenn Weldon. And I'm Stephen Thompson. Today, we are talking about Ralph Breaks the Internet. Joining us from WBEZ in Chicago is The Verge's film and TV editor and my old pal, Tasha Robinson. Hi, Tasha. Hi, guys. It's great to be back. It's great to have you. And at WBUR in Boston is Margaret H. Willison. Margaret is one half of the Two Bossy Dames newsletter and one third of the Appointment Television podcast. Thanks for joining us, Margaret. I'm very happy to be here, Stephen. It is a pleasure to have you all here to talk Ralph Breaks the Internet. I'm actually going to start because I'm looking right at him. I'm going to start with Glenn Weldon. Glenn, what did you think of Ralph Breaks the Internet? I went back to listen to our Wreck-It Ralph episode. Uh, God, we were so young, Stephen. Um, (laughs) Because I remembered having some reservations. I wasn't sure what they were. And then I got like two minutes in. Oh, yeah. Wreck-It Ralph was so, I thought, needlessly overcomplicated and overplotted. And some of that was understandable because you're building a world and you just established the rules. But there were so many rules. You can't die in another game. There's a surge protector. There's viruses. There's the cry bugs. There's the beacons, the glitch. And then you got into that racing game, Sugar Rush, which had all of its own caveats and conditions. How to win the race. And the glitch can't win the race because if the glitch wins the race, then the game would reset on and on and on. This is a sequel, which means that the work of world building is more or less done. Also, we're moving from the made-up world of what it's like inside a video game to the internet, Mm -hmm. which is a thing that we all interact with every day, so you don't have to spend as much time setting up rules because we all know the rules. Getting likes is good. There we go. (laughs) So it's a cleaner story. It's a quest narrative. No, it does split in two. Both of the main characters, Vanellope and Ralph, are going about this quest in different ways to reflect differences in their characters, right? what they want. I liked the Disney princesses stuff, uh, best thing in the movie, (laughs) in my humble opinion. Also had seen that months ago because they released that scene in its entirety, like back in the summer. So that was risky. (laughs) Um, I could go on about the stuff I liked about it, but I'm hoping to come away from this discussion today understanding something (laughs) that I don't understand, which is why it didn't land with me very hard. I didn't love it, didn't hate it, sort of there. 
with all this other stuff that I liked, I'm, I'm wondering why it didn't cohere for me. So hopefully you guys will uh, teach me about me. Okay, I promise nothing. I hope that the, the words "sort of there" yeah. are, will be uh, will be on the movie posters <laughs> in the in the uh, in the second run. Uh, Margaret, how about you? What did you think of Ralph Breaks the Internet? I saw it under possibly unfairly pro this movie circumstances, namely with my best friend of seventeen years, while we skipped our fifteen year high school reunion. Oh, smart, and smart, smart, smart. I came in with pretty low expectations because I watched the first movie and I thought it was. Mostly exceptional in terms of his voice acting, but largely playing around in a sandbox that didn't have a lot of pertinence to me because I've never been a gamer. So I sort of came into this and I was like, really don't know what I'm going to get from this. And what I got from it was a very profound commentary on the way friendships grow and change over time as you grow and change over time that made me cry a great deal on my best friend's shoulder. Oh, <laughs> Kids, always skip your 15-year high school reunion. <laughs> And the 10th, and the 15th, and the 20th, and the 25th, 30th. All right. How about you, Tasha? I loved Wreck-It Ralph. Uh, just absolutely loved it. And the reason I loved it was the complexity that, that Glenn did not care for. I loved the fact that every time I thought I knew where this movie was going, it took a new left turn. I loved the density of it. I loved the way it challenged viewers to keep up with it. For me, Ralph Breaks the Internet, one of the problems with it was that it was just so simple and straightforward up until the end when it out of nowhere seems to try to develop a soul. For the most part, I found this to be a pretty soulless movie. I enjoyed the humor of it. I loved the Disney sequence. A lot of the internet gags hit home for me. But I found it pretty soulless because it's just sort of reiterating earlier points and making very cheap, low-hanging fruit gags about what it's like to be online all the time. And then towards the end... Out of nowhere, it becomes a message movie about not being a terrible friend. And uh, Stephen and I have talked before about the degree to which children's movies tend to be messagey, and the message tends to be, if you believe in yourself, you can do anything, which is manifestly not true, uh, especially especially if you're a penguin and you're trying to learn to fly. Like, that's just – it's not a thing that's going to happen just because you have it in your dreams and in your heart. This movie gave me a message that I haven't seen in a kid's movie before, which is don't be a needy, clingy, awful friend and accept that you can't own other people, which I think is a really good message to have. But I thought it brought it across in a really emotionally evocative way. One of the reasons I loved Wreck-It Ralph so much was because it made the characters so vulnerable and so so hurt. And you get to watch them reconstructing themselves, putting themselves back together. This starts from a much less vulnerable place, but it does eventually go to a, a place of, of almost more naked emotion. It just takes a really long time to get there. I find a lot of the film working up to that moment pretty disposable. But as Glenn says, it's there. It's it's harmless. It's colorful. It's fun. It's just for me nowhere near the power of the original film. Wow. Okay. All right. The first Wreck-It Ralph basically made in a lab to be loved by me. <laughs> uh, it is fun and lively. I I agree, Glenn, that it's a little rulesy, but it is full of Easter eggs about video games from 1983. I mean, it is designed <laughs> for now 46-year-olds <laughs> to enjoy with, <laughs> to enjoy with their kids. This film for me actually follows a, a, a pretty typical formula with movies like this. You take your uh, How to Train Your Dragon, your Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, your Kung Fu Panda, your first 
first movie is about world building and about establishing that a character is not who they are predestined to be. You want to be a kung fu fighter, not a regular panda. You want to be a dragon trainer, not a warrior. You want to be uh, an inventor, not the guy who works in the sardine store. All of these, <laughs> all of these movies are kind of about world building and also establishing that the character is breaking the mold in some way. And in Wreck-It Ralph, Ralph wants to be a hero and not a villain. And that is, that's a fairly simple thing to understand. Now, in all of the film franchises that I just named, the second movie is about breaking those bonds, is about leaving that world. As such, each of those sequels is a little bit harder to love than the first one. In the first Wreck-It Ralph, you have established this very contained world of this arcade where these video games live and then the characters all go through the surge suppressor and hang out after hours. One of the things that I think is interesting about Ralph Breaks the Internet is it really just takes two of those characters, Vanellope and Ralph, and then takes them into the internet where it introduces this wave of new characters. You have the YouTube uh, lady, <laughs> played, Maven, <laughs> Maven uh, played by Taraji P. Henson, uh, yes. uh, who, is, who is a lot of fun. You have the, the skeezy uh, spammer, kind of the closest this movie gets to acknowledging the existence of porn. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And you have uh, Shank, the race car driver, played by Gal Gadot, that provides the impetus for the pulling apart of this friendship. And it kind of wasn't until you get into the scene with the Disney princesses, which I think we can all, do we all agree that's the best part of this movie? Uh, Easily. Yep. Uh, I mean, I think it's Vanellope and Ralph's friendship, but I guess I can be the minority. You have a soul. <laughs> the characters and what they do the, with their lives. Pathos, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> let me let, let me back up, though. I, I also got a huge kick out of the scene towards the end where the princesses work together. You get to see what all of their specialties look like when applied yes. to a problem. Mm-hmm. Did you have the feeling kind of like kind of like I did with the first Wreck-It Ralph that Disney commenting on itself and kind of lightly subverting itself can ring a little bit hollow? Uh, what I felt was that the decision to directly reference Disney and Facebook and Amazon and BuzzFeed and eBay and all kinds of existing IPs like that means it's speaking to our current moment, which is a huge risk because you can kind of feel the gravitational pull of going full DreamWorks, right? Going full, <laughs> You're going to say you to Ant. You're going to say Making you lazily contemporary. You can feel that. I think we approach the event horizon of you to Ant, but we never go all the way in. It also means that this movie is going to date in a way that the original mm-hmm. won't because Wreck-It Ralph and something that I thought about a lot, Ready Player One, were both fueled by a nostalgia for the 80s that -hmm. was baked in. That's what the films were about. This movie is going to be colored by that same kind of nostalgia in like 10, 20 years, but in five, it's going to just seem really dated. All these references are not going to apply anymore. And by tackling the current internet culture, you're also moving into a territory of comedy that we've been exploring for 20 plus years, which means that certain jokes are going to feel well-traveled. Like, for example, (laughs) the notion that if you walk through the internet, pop-up ads are going to hector you for your attention is a gag from The Chappelle Show in 2004. (laughs) Now, I'm not saying he owns that joke. I'm just saying we've been here a lot. We've made a lot of these observations. And so if you're going to do this and tackle this in this way, you got to come up with something fresh. 
I feel like Disney kind of already owns uh, nostalgia and and canon and the future. They, just the idea <laughs> of they own to. nostalgia and the future. Jeez, that's a past, all, all they need is the Harry Potter franchise, and they'll have everything. <laughs> there was a big merger, Glenn. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was Disney. There was past. There was future. Disney bought both of the other things. Uh. So, you know, we're still waiting for the IEC to clear the whole thing. <laughs> Disney makes so many of its movies. Has traditionally made so many of its movies in order to join a canon that it then pushed as a conceptual idea, you know, the Disney vault, the Disney canon, the Disney library. I think it's fine to have them making a movie that's for the moment that instead of making a movie that's for 30 years from now, for reselling it to you in hologram form and eventually in injection form. Um, I, I'm fine with them making jokes about right now that are funny right now. I The Disney princess scene is certainly calculated. It's certainly safe humor. But I still enjoyed it hugely because it's irreverent humor. And Disney had so many decades of being humorless in a certain way, certainly humorless about itself. (laughs) And when it was humor, it was a very safe and predictable and packaged and wholesome kind of humor. Ariel wearing a T-shirt that expressly makes fun of her I want number to me is (laughs) it's still safe humor, but it is irreverent. And it does kind of poke fun at the Disney canon in a way that maybe baby steps towards, (laughs) you know, a Ricky Gervais extras like full on self skewering. But for now, it's enough for me. It's enough for me to, to see that step being taken. But I do think that we are possibly underselling the strength of the emotional arcs that these characters have. I don't think that it's just because I was in a theater with my best friend of 17 years that it hit so well. I feel like, particularly for Vanellope, you could have sort of frozen her character development. And they chose instead to really go with it and be like, what would this character we created in the first movie, who has this rebellious streak, who has this mischief... What would she feel like if she was trapped in the same game and actually part of the system for years and years and years? And what would a perfect world look like for this creature who was sort of never supposed to exist in the way that she has come to exist? I thought that was really, really beautiful. It made me really emotional. You know what made me really emotional was her meeting with Shank. I have a complainy brain, is how I think of it. It's like somebody who sits directly behind me in the theater and says, "Well, that very that isn't very plausible, is it? Like, how how exactly is he making all of these YouTube videos?" Uh, and <laughs> complainy brain, shut up completely at the moment where it became clear that Shank was going to, instead of becoming a bad guy who hated Vanellope, was instead like an admirer, could yeah. could look at her skills at racing and say, this is somebody cool that I want to know. And the two of them form a friendship that's just based in mutual respect. I couldn't tell you the last time I remember seeing that between two female characters in like an animated kids film. Yeah. And the more that relationship <laughs> developed, the happier I got with it, the, the happier I got with where the film was, was taking it. Yeah, perhaps that's the most subversive thing that this movie actually does, is it presents a relationship between two women, one of them young, one of them older, that's supportive instead of adversarial. The more we talk about the relationships within the movie, the more I retroactively like it. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> so you know, you guys are both doing doing great work here. The, the children's story of you can be anything if you just believe in yourself is a lie, but the friendship story of your friendship will survive. You just have to believe in it. You just have to give it space to grow and change. 
that I've actually found to be a really true lesson in the world. And that's not necessarily something that you see addressed in many films at all. And to see it done so well in a film for kids was really great for me. I like it when these movies sometimes realize that the situation that they're in is fraught enough that you don't really necessarily need to introduce a villain. Yeah. Like, the villain is insecurity. (laughs) The villain is the friends we made along the way. (laughs) (laughs) We're all coming down... Points on the same spectrum. How about that? But this is a fun but flawed movie. Some will like it more than others. Hot take. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, a lot of you saw Ralph Breaks the Internet. We want to know what you think. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH or tweet us at PCHH. When we come back, it will be time to talk about what is making us happy this week. So come right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Buffy, the comforter made better for you and the earth. Buffy uses natural eucalyptus to create a soothing, silk-soft fabric and rejuvenates recycled bottles into a cloud-like fill, all to create a comforter with 4.8 stars across 13,000 reviews without cruelty or waste. Visit Buffy.co to experience the complimentary 30-night trial and use code NPR to save $20 on your purchase. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Bombas. Bombas has re-engineered socks for ultimate comfort by getting rid of that annoying toe seam, adding arch support, and using some of the world's softest cotton. And for every pair purchased, Bombas donates a pair to someone in need. To date, they've sold and donated over 10 million pairs. To feel the Bombas difference, go to bombas.com slash happy hour for 20% off your first order. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. It is time once again for our favorite segment of this week and every week. What is making us happy this week? Glenn Weldon, what's making you happy this week, buddy? Uh, Two things. First of all, the 2018 Book Concierge. NPR Book Concierge is live. NPR.org slash best books. 300 plus titles. A very intuitive and beautiful app that gives you recommendations based on all kinds of filters. It's uh, useful. I contributed to it, not in the same way I did last year when I was kind of in the thick of it making the sausage. I just (laughs) submitted a few reviews. And I can tell you, it is a labor of love. It's mostly love, but sometimes it's a lot of labor. It's It's, a labor of labor. It's a labor of labor (laughs) and a love of love. So that's the first thing, the NPR Books Concierge. Uh, Hey, Stephen, you know what I don't care about is The Bachelor. You know what I care about (laughs) less is The Australian Bachelor. And you know what I actively love is Facebook. (laughs) And yet, and yet, and yet, Matt Whitehead is an entertainment reporter for 10 Daily, an Australian digital media outlet. He posts these brief five-minute video recaps of the Australian Bachelor and Bachelorette. He calls them batch-ups, like (laughs) Uh catch-ups, which gives you a sense of what you're in for. Here is a very funny, charming gay guy making some very dumb puns about a lot of very dumb people. Puns which he and I find hilarious, uh, that is, uh, to the dismay of his off-screen producer, uh, <laughs> while also making a lot of very thirsty single entendres about his sex life. Uh, sign me up. Uh, now, you can't watch the videos directly on the 10 Daily site because international video restrictions, yada, 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 but there is a workaround. So follow him on Twitter, at M-A-T-W-H-I, that's M-A-T-W-H-I. He's worth a follow, trust me, very funny guy. And wait for him to link to the Facebook video of each episode. Then you can watch it and likely crush on him the same way I have. Um, (laughs) I think they're between seasons now, but you can search. So Matt Whitehead's batch-ups via his Twitter feed on the 10 Daily Facebook site. Thank you, Glenn Weldon. Tasha Robinson, what's making you happy this week? 
people who follow me on social media or ever speak to me in person or know a single thing about me are aware that I am very much of the nerdly persuasion. Mm-hmm. Uh, the devil you said. <laughs> you beat me to so it. So <laughs> it will perhaps come as no surprise to you, some of those people that I enjoy board games and card games and, and role-playing games and other nerdly activities. I recently came across a game that's been in the indie gaming sphere for a little while. It's called Fall of Magic. The kind of people uh, that look at Neil Gaiman fantasy and say this is too popular to be called fantasy, we shall call it magical realism, (laughs) could look at this game and call it applied storytelling or collaborative storytelling or experiential storytelling. The game exists in the form of a a linen map that seems designed for Glenn Weldon's personal tastes. Uh It kind of evokes the, the original map from Tolkien's The Hobbit. As it unfolds, play proceeds with people looking at locations on the map and using them to evoke stories. And up to four players collaboratively tell a fantasy story. Now, this is definitely a game for people who enjoy fantasy tropes, who enjoy that kind of space that epic fantasy takes place in. If you have people who like genre, if you have people who like creativity, it's a small indie publisher. So, you know, supporting them is supporting the indie games scene and uh, some really innovative creators. The Fall of Magic. I I really enjoy this game a lot. Thank you, Tasha. Margaret, what's uh, making you happy this week? I, too, am happy about the launch of NPR's book concierge because I am one of the many people within and without NPR who got to contribute to it. I got to write up 10 books. I ferociously love all of them. But I'm going to call out two particular facets of that that are delightful to me. So the first, five love stories, all of them charming, all of them approachable, all of them fizzy and fun, and three of them happen to be about queer love stories. And that's just a huge watershed moment for a genre that I'm really invested in, to see that those diverse stories are being included and being featured, and that audiences are understanding that they can be just as fun to read about as anything else. As someone who wants rom-coms to survive, I love to see them diversify. So that's thing one. And then thing two is I got to write up Guy Branham's excellent memoir, My Life as a Goddess, a memoir through unpopular culture. And Glenn has talked about this book on here before, so I am just doubling down and saying it is some of the best writing about art I have read ever. He has a chapter in here that's about his dad and his father's favorite movie, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. And it is some of the best writing about film and father-son relationships that I've ever encountered. If you haven't picked it up yet, really do yourself a favor and pick it up. It's fantastic as an audiobook and it's a great thing to read on an airplane. Second so, and third and fourth. It's amazing. <laughs> I cannot praise it highly enough. And I was thrilled to get to write it up for the concierge. The book's concierge, My Life is a Goddess, and uh, Love Stories Galore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you, Margaret H. Willison. NPR Music is working on a project not quite of the scope and scale of the book's concierge, but it is year-end music season. And as such, I'm going through uh, dozens and dozens of albums that I never really quite got around to over the course of the year. And along the way, I've fallen madly in love with uh, an album by a, a country singer named Ashley McBride. It has been an 
extraordinary year for women in country music. Casey Musgraves, Pistol Annie's, Ashley Monroe, Amanda Shires. All of those records are terrific. This album has this kind of shaggy, lived-in quality that has really, really resonated with me. She sings all these songs about being underestimated, being in an underwhelming but loving relationship, loving a a, a beat-up garment that's meant a lot to her family. Uh, And all of these songs are wrapped up in this phrasing that is extraordinarily warm and kind of bound up in insight in a really beautiful way. Let's actually hear a little bit of uh, the chorus to a song called A Little Dive Bar in Dahlonega. You listen to that chorus and you hear just the way she hits the word right. Uh, For whatever reason, it just knocks down every one of my defenses. Uh, She's a terrific, terrific young singer. Can't wait to hear more. The album is called Girl by Ashley McBride. And that brings us to the end of our show. You can find all of us on Twitter. You can find me at I Dislike Steven. You can find Glenn at G.H. Weldon, Margaret at Mrs. Friday Next, and Tasha at Tasha Robinson. You can follow our producer, Jessica Reedy, at Jessica underscore Reedy, our producer, Vincent Acavino at V. Acavino, and our producer emeritus and music director, Mike Katzif at Mike Katzif. That's K-A-T-Z-I-F. Mike's band, Hello Come In, provides the music you are bobbing your head to right now. Thanks to all of you for being here. Thank you. Thanks for so having much fun. us. Thanks for listening, and if you have a second and you're so inclined, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more folks to find the show. We will see you all right back here next week. We're here to remind you that there is one place where you can support your local station. You can support public radio, you can support Pop Culture Happy Hour, and everything we do at NPR by going to donate.npr.org happy. This week on Ask Me Another, we have comedian Michelle Wolf, and she shares her opinion about the White House's recent decision to not have a comedian at this year's Correspondents' Dinner. They want to make a case for the First Amendment, which, first of all, if you have to make a case for the First Amendment, you're losing it. Yeah, it's not happening. And you know that won't be all on NPR's Hour of Puzzles, Word Games, and Trivia.